0: Thank you. Can you all hear me okay? Oh, yeah. We have time too. Can you all hear
1: me okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, our presentation is called Objectifying EPA, and then there's a long subtitle that I forget. But. Perfect. Something like that. Seeing
2: it through the lens of
1: seeing it through the lens of current events. Thank you very much. You are shaming me
2: already.
0: always like to the
1: Yes. Uh, so what we're going to talk about is uh, this book that I wrote called Mr. Jefferson's Telescope, which was written on the occasion of the bicentennial of UVA and then was turned into an amazing exhibition by Molly and her colleagues at Special Collections that you all can go see for free in the Special Collections building while you're here this weekend. So we're going to talk a little bit about those two things and some of the conversations that have come up out of this interesting collaboration and then we're going to have time for questions at the end but you are also willing to shout out uh, questions, corrections, challenges, or just insults um, <laughs> while we go. So here we go. This is the book, and as Molly has held up, this is Mr. Jefferson's Telescope History of the University of Virginia in 100 Objects. It was published last year by the University of Virginia Press. And I thought it might be worth saying a few words about how it came to be written. It started out as a cover story in the University of Virginia Alumni Magazine. Uh, It was two or three summers ago, if you can remember back that far. And uh, it was, they did a history of UVA in like 50 objects. And so uh, an editor at the press saw that and said, OK, if you want a book with 100 objects, Brennan, we're going to need you to come up with that list of 100 objects. And instead of writing 100 words about each object, write 500 words and do it in four months. And so that's what I did. And it was a really interesting process because you don't have a lot of time to overthink the process in four months. I took the 50 objects that the magazine had, and then I went and talked to the historians and the curators, the special collections people that I knew, and just said, what should we put in this book? And when they talked, I wrote, and when I got up to 100, I stopped, and I started, <laughs> and I started researching. And so this book has everything from the number one object, which is as you might have guessed, Mr. Jefferson's telescope, uh, which was, uh, is, it, it it belongs to the folks at Monticello, it was believed to have, it was used by Jefferson, down on UVA grounds from the terrace of Monticello while uh, UVA was being built. So We've got everything from that to a Barbie doll, a UVA Barbie doll, which was acquired by uh, special collections at UVA. and this was coming out of the Toys Us, and stood behind and got one. Why would you put a Barbie doll in this book, and what does it have to do with anything? I'm just going to leave that to you to read. Uh, it's got everything from the Barbie doll to a strip of. James McConnell's downed biplane from World War I. He was, as you may already know, a graduate of UVA and was the uh, person memorialized by the aviator
2: statue.
1: Was it outside uh, Clemens? And we've got number 88 here, which was the last Easter's T-shirt. Before that was banned by muddy and disgusted university administrators. <laughs> and number eight is uh, what was called a vice device, which was <laughs> created by Raymond Vice, who was a sort of legendary figure around Brown, psychology professor, but also an administrator. Did anyone
0: attend that last Easter? Yeah. So we um, had somebody show up at the exhibition opening wearing that t-shirt. So it was in the exhibition case, and some guy came wearing
1: it. Oh, that's amazing. I haven't heard that. Did, so do you still have t-shirts from...
2: Oh, that's so cool. So what is t-shirts? Okay, so, oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Can we extend the program, please? Okay.
2: The Easter's. Go, these ahead. These these are, go ahead. The Blaster Easter's is a three-day weekend, dance weekend, including a formal, as in tux, on Saturday night, with name names, several, during the weekend. Many of the events were held at, uh, at uh, Mount Gym, Okay, in terms of the, the central events. But it was the wildest fraternity party weekend you'll ever see. And it failed. It failed because. People could walk up from Ohio, and goons from Chicago could show up and become drunken idiots. And it just gave UVA any number of problems, including really bad news. So we prefer to do heavy training on our own here in Virginia for UVA any moment. Uh, source. It was a, uh, you had they come out of town because they were very new town, and you had, or well, nurses were invited, yes, and then you had, uh, you. and you had all kinds of dinners and parties and so forth and so on. It was a wonderful time. There were three of them. It's Research was far and more um, okay. In
1: 1982, that doesn't quite describe what <laughs> <laughs> it is. It did sort of morph into, in, yeah, it it transformed in a bad way mm-hmm. uh, to something that was maybe just like a giant muddy mess in, in the field, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the
2: land of fields where we had all of the old um, events.
1: Yeah, and there'd be so much mud going back to the dorm that they would clog up the pipes. <laughs> uh, anyway,
0: <laughs>
2: Easter's.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: so, so from Jefferson's telescope, to a Barbie doll, to the, the plane, to the Easter's t-shirt device device, and we also did try to include uh, portions of UVA's history that are not as fun to remember that are sometimes difficult for us to talk about and confront. In this case, uh, this is a picture of an enslaved woman named Sally Cottrell Cole who was born at Monticello and uh, was enslaved at the University of Virginia. So this gives you a sense of what's in the book and I'm going to pass it over to Molly to talk about what's
0: in the exhibition. So I decided to make this into an exhibition when I ran into Brendan at a Christmas party and he told me his book was being written and I, I said, How many of the items are from special collections? And he said, I don't know, about about three quarters. And uh, so it was an immediate decision. And I thought this is gonna be so much fun. And it was a really interesting experience transforming a book into an exhibition. Um, the book is in linear order chronologically, so the numbers represent the, the, the historical uh, spread of, of the objects, which go all the way up to present. And we couldn't do that in the gallery because um, the objects are all different sizes, they have different <coughs> environmental needs. We learned a lot working on this exhibition about uh, the environmental needs of non-book and paper objects, which are not what we specialize in in special collections. We specialize in books and papers. But we had things like um, objects made out of rubber, like vice to device. And it turns out, you know, you don't want rubber and silver in, say, an exhibition piece. Um, you'll notice if you ever ever used a rubber band to put a bunch of, um, of uh, silver spoons together, for instance. Um, don't, don't do that. Not a good idea. So um, it was a really fantastic, exciting learning experience for us transforming this book into an exhibition. Um, among other things, um, we decided we weren't going to stop with the gallery. A lot of the objects in the book are not actual objects, but buildings cool. or things like the gardens behind the pavilions. So, um, large things that at first we thought, oh, we'll put photographs in, but well, that's not very fun. Why not send people to go see the lumber statue or to see the minor bust at the law school? So, there are actually uh, 21 objects at 16 satellite sites. Uh, come in if you if you if you want to come. Oh you don't have to, but I mean you're very welcome. <laughs> we didn't want to no, no, no. no, in So there are sixteen satellite sites. So like, as you're walking around grounds this weekend and you have a bunch of brochures you can take with you. There's a map and you can sort of find so all the items. It's really, really fun for us as Special Collections. We've never done anything this ambitious before. So it's a pretty exciting experience. Um, You'll see here another view of the gallery. And you see there's the the photograph of Sally Quattro Cole, which in reality is very small, um, daguerreotype, is blown up to the size of one of our windows. And next to that, um, you'll see another window is covered with these little pink and orange uh, dots. Oh, yes, question. It's running through June 22nd, so you can see it this weekend, but it's been up on almost the whole year. So it's, it's still up for a little bit longer. You see those, those, those little dots? Those are actually post-it notes. In fact, those are facsimiles of post-it notes. Um, this is the kind of thing we do with the Special Collections. We collect everything we can relating really to university history. Those post-it notes, the originals, were left on the doors of Peabody Hall, next door to Special Collections. Um, in the wake of the article that was published in Rolling Stone magazine, um, which I'm sure you all know about, um, which was later debunked, but um, the original article sparked a massive student protest about issues having to do with sexual assault um, in the university campus community. And students wrote their thoughts about sexual assault and UVA on post-its and left them on the door. And our university archivist got permission from the students who planned that particular protest to, at a certain time, gather all of the Post-its, and we took them into Special Collections, because that's what we do, we document university history. So when Brendan decided to use them in the book, we then decided to use them in the exhibition, and we had a wonderful student assistant in Special Collections who cut out every single one of those facsimile Post-its, and then they stuck them all up on the door. So really exciting to be able to sort of try and give people a tangible um, connection back to the past, um, and as Brendan said, I think sort of understated, um, because I think the book is incredibly impressive in the way that it is both a celebration of UVA and a critique and, and a sort of thoughtful interrogation of UVA as a concept. Um, and there's so much interest right now in these issues, and, and the book does a beautiful job of really thinking carefully about what the nature of UVA's, um, you know, reputation, for instance, is, and where the challenges through history have lain. Um, so one of the most important and satisfying things to me about the project, and making it an exhibition, is you know you're work with someone else's stuff, you don't get to choose it. Um, and, and that produced a lot of challenges for us, logistically, with some of the objects. Um, but you also um, need to inherit the ideology of, of that person. And Brandon's approach to book Um, which is one I totally agree with as a curator, was warts and all. I believe this is the the phrase that that Brendan has used at many points in time. And we found that to be um, an extremely um, successful approach. Um, My favorite thing to do every day when I get to work is to check the comment book in the gallery. And this is my favorite comment. I don't know who Gail Kasmer is, but she said this, exhibition made me think in new ways. And I think three people in the entire eight months, nine months it's been up, have said, there's too much negative history in this. Or one person I think didn't like that we referred to, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, the events of August 11th and 12th, and said, I think there's too much contemporary history. There were a couple sort of uncomfortable moments of people saying, this isn't the UVA that I wanted to see when I came to this exhibition. Um, but I've been so pleased because we've had very few comments of that kind. Um, the comments have mostly been, thank you so much for telling the whole story. And Brendan's going to get back to this concept of, of the whole story in uh, a moment. Um, and I think, too, that it's this idea of thinking through objects that people have found incredibly interesting. Why is the Barbie Doll interesting? doll Doll's interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, and encountering that Barbie doll in the context of a history exhibition makes the Barbie meaningful or in the context of the book in a way that the Barbie on its own um, as a toy in a toy chest um, may not be as accessible as something that's intellectually interesting. So it's really, really been fascinating. Um, And now I'm going to turn it over to to Brendan to take this idea and and take it a little further. Well, going back
1: to the to the Barbie doll. Uh, That Barbie doll was on the list of my 100 objects. Um, It got on that list just as soon as uh, a a curator at uh, Special Collections said, well, we've got this Barbie doll. So, okay, that's on the list. That seemed interesting. I had no idea what I was gonna say about it. But because it was number 93 out of 100, and because I was writing them in order, I knew I didn't have to worry about it until I got there, right? And so what was kind of interesting about the way in which this book was written is that what I had to say about that Barbie doll number 93 was going to be completely dependent upon what I had to say about objects 1 through 92, which I honestly didn't know what that was going to be when I started. But one of the things that happened as I was writing is that these these themes and these connections and these narratives started to develop by looking at these different objects. And and one of those themes was uh, this idea of, of, of what the University of Virginia was supposed to be from the beginning. It's something that, over the course of its history, students and faculty and administrators argued with one another about. And for a long time, and to a certain extent still today, a vision of UVA is in some way articulated by saying what UVA is not, and UVA is not state you right? We're different, we're not the thugs from Chicago, I'm from near Chicago. But, uh, but so what became interesting to me once I got to that Barbie doll is what is more state you than a Barbie doll cheerleader, you know, sports cheerleader. UVA struggled over its history, far farther back than I would have guessed when beginning the book, has really struggled with what role sports should play, and struggled with the idea. Of and this is, you know, back to the early 1900s, struggling with this idea that sports can take over, that sports can overcome the kind of ethical uh, scholarly foundations that the university was supposed to be about. And so and so the idea that, that UVA um, and everyone was not UVA all sort of felt comfortable about this Barbie doll just shows you the sort of transformation of the school and its its image of itself, at least on one level, over the years. Uh, The reason these books are up here is that one of the objects, and I don't think I planned this, I don't think this object was on the list when I first started, but these five volumes are a history of the university written by a man named Philip Alexander Bruce, who was himself a graduate of UVA, and a historian, and he was commissioned on the occasion of the centennial of the university to write a history, and his history came out in five volumes, and that was just the first hundred years.
0: Let's put this up in contrast. Five volumes from huh. Right.
1: Right. Uh, he had a little more to say about UVA than maybe I did. But I uh, consulted those five volumes uh, quite a bit when I was working on the first half of my book anyway. And I consulted Bruce and quoted from Bruce so often in my book that I felt like he had become a kind of character in the book. Well, You know, let us now consult Bruce to uh, find what is the most uh, hyperbolically positive thing anyone could say about this professor. Uh, But he was also a very serious historian, and as you might imagine, these five volumes are... Thorough and exhaustive. They're also a little (laughs) exhausting. But uh, one of the things that struck me about this is that Bruce really had a very firm idea about what the University of Virginia meant, what it stood for, what its relationship to its founder was, and where it ought to go in the future. And at the end of that fifth volume, he articulated this. Um, he, he talked about uh, Jefferson's unerring vision. He talked about how Jefferson was unfailingly <coughs> correct in his ideas about the university. What struck me then is I worked on uh, the next 100 years of the university's history is how those years seem, in many respects, to be nothing if not a repudiation of a lot of the foundational views of Jefferson and uh, Professor Bruce. Uh, I mean in terms of the role of race at the university, should African-Americans be students the role of women at the university. Should women be students? Jefferson would have said no and no. And Bruce would have said no and no. The third thing that uh, the next hundred years would struggle over is the role of elites and elitism at the university. I think that uh, Jefferson founded the university, in large part, to educate elite white men in how to be leaders, and he understood that this was crucial in a democracy, that you you create the leadership class. But over the years, the role of public education has changed drastically, so that in the 19... 50s, the president of the university then was colgate Darton, and he was pushing to include more uh, more public school kids to come to UVA. So much that our friend Brandon Weiss actually created a computer that would allow the university to crunch numbers to help colgate Darton bring in more kids. This got a lot of pushback from faculty and students. So that one faculty member was quoted as saying, wait a second, are you saying that you just want to make UVA a catch-all for any kid from Virginia who wants to go to college? God forbid. And Darwin's like, yes, (laughs) that is what we want. And we, we sort of laugh about it now because it's so obvious that that's what a state university ought to be. It's never been obvious that that's what UVA wants to be. Whether you talk about African American people or women, but also just, you know, what is the role, the meaning of an elite school, a public ivy, if you will, versus a school that brings in a broader uh, swath of people. I personally don't have a strong opinion on that what's right and what's wrong there. The point is simply that that's something that UVA has struggled with. The Barbie doll kind of speaks to that. But these five volumes speak to that
2: in the sense
1: that at uh, the 100 year mark of UVA's history, you had a historian who felt comfortable really sort of writing five volumes with total certainty about what UVA is and what it means. At the end of 200 years, I feel like we are at a place of uncertainty where it comes to UVA's history, what it means, what our relationship is with that history and is with Thomas Jefferson for that matter. And so so in some respects, thinking about my book uh, versus Bruce's five volumes is just a kind of uh, symbolic way of, of suggesting where we're at.
0: You're making me think about it. Edgar Allan Poe that, you know, coming to UVA, even at its sounding, and attempting to play the game of the UVA elites and not having enough money to do so. And it really isn't until Colgate Darden that kids extremely smart kids who are competitive intellectually, who really are, you know, the brain trust of the working and the lower middle class, um, are really supportive at EBA, right? That it's until then, uh, it's, it isn't until then really that there's a, there's a safety net for those kids. Um, the creation of, of Newton Hall as uh, the center of social life at the university versus the fraternities, which are a site of privilege and which cost a lot to belong to. So you know, Poe has to drop out because he doesn't have enough money to party with the, with the big kids, with the rich kids. And, and still left behind the, a library front. That's right, huh? which is really the see in there. <laughs> there to see it. and it's just really interesting because these, you, know, you really do see this, this constant struggle, but it really is in the last century that these massive shifts have, have occurred. And yeah, I I think that the point Brandon makes about his book versus this book is is really a great one. Um, This is a narrative told with confidence and clarity in one voice. Um, This is a a compilation of objects that are sort of speaking what is obviously just one version of the history. That, you know, when you have 100 objects, there's something sort of absurd about that, right? You can't tell the University of Virginia's history in only 100 objects. That's the whole point. Um, This concept comes from the British Library. Um, We are not the first to do this. The British Library did a big exhibition about 15 years ago called, I believe, History of the World in 100 Objects. It's a wonderful concept, right? I mean, don't you wanna go see what a ridiculous thing that's gonna be? What on earth are they gonna choose to tell the history of the world in 100 objects? And the whole point is, of course it's impossible, but the objects that you choose and the narratives that you choose set your history. So, even, even the order that you put. Any order? Yes. Absolutely. I feel like I could,
1: you know, throw this all on the floor and rearrange it, put them in a different order, and then different connections emerge from one object to another. And That's different reality. narratives emerge.
2: And, yeah, exactly.
0: So it's really just fascinating. And, and so. Uh, Starting with that sort of issue, with that reality, sort of what, how do you choose what objects tell your story and which history you tell? Uh, I want to tell you a story about one of the objects in the exhibition and how that object was utterly transformed the weekend before the exhibition was meant to open. So one of the objects that we have here in the Special Collections is a Klan cross. And uh, this was chosen for the book um, by Brandon. For good reason. Uh, it's a pretty compelling object. It was owned by a woman named Sarah Patton Boyle. Some of you may have heard of her. She was a, a Charlottesville resident who was a faculty wife. She was married to a, a professor of drama. And in the mid 1950s, during you know this incredible uh, moment of integration, of the fight against integration at the Charlottesville schools, the fight against and for integration in Charlottesville at UVA, she became a civil rights activist. Um, and a really interesting one. Um, she wrote a great memoir about this. And at one point, um, during one of the various uh, struggles that went on in Charlottesville, this cross was burned in her front yard um, as a threat. And she kept it. She took it um, from her front yard and hung it on her living room wall as a uh, symbol and uh, a remembrance of what had happened to her and, and what, what the Civil Rights Movement is about. And she donated the cross to the library when she donated her archive to the library. So this is a great item to have in this exhibition because it <coughs> represents that moment, the 1950s. This other side of the 1950s, you have Darwin democratizing the student community, um, and then we have you know, this fight, the massive resistance um, to integration in Charlottesville. And this object sort of, you know, you only have hundred. This is the one object that, that represents that particular struggle. So as we were working on the exhibition and trying to figure out you know how to display this cross, this item actually ended up taking more energy for conservation purposes than anything else in the entire exhibition. It cost more to care for and more to display. It needed a custom case, it needed a lot of care, uh, it's been burned, um, it's falling apart, little bits fall off every time you move it. Um, so we spent a lot of time and energy on this. Um, and as we were coming close to the exhibition opening, we had two things happen in Charlottesville. There was, there was, a, there was a sort of torch rally in, in May of uh, 2017, and then in July, there was a clan gathering. And we started getting a little bit anxious. We thought, well, you know, we were going to put this clan cross in our gallery. What's going to happen? So I met with Brendan and the Dean of Libraries. We had, new, we had a special collections coming in. She hadn't even started her job yet. She talked with us. We all had to discuss what to do because we were getting a little bit anxious about putting this very, very um, distressing and disturbing object on display, especially in the era of social media, when you don't know what's gonna happen to that object if you put it on display. So we met We talked about it. We decided, you know what, we don't want to compromise ourselves. We're gonna put it on display. Um, It's important, we don't want to hide this history, Um, um, but we'll we'll be cautious about how we display it. So we decided to have a a warning outside the gallery so that people wouldn't be traumatized um, by encountering this object, I can imagine that if you've experienced having a cross-ferred your front yard, let's say an elderly resident of Charlesville King in, in the exhibition, and had that happen, an African, African-American resident, uh, and encountered this, that would be pretty pretty traumatic. So we want to make sure to warn people. and We put a big sign, we wrote this big label about why it's on display, why it's in the collection. And we had it on a black background, so it'd be hard to photograph, we didn't want it to go viral on some Nazi, you know, whatever. And the exhibition was supposed to open on August 14th. <laughs> so August 12th, I at a conference in California messaging with all of my you know, colleagues and my boss saying, we, we can't open the exhibition with the cross in it. And on that day, I was worried about that telescope, which we borrowed from Monticello, and other precious things that were shared in reality with this. I was imagining people throwing things. Mm breaking cases. This was a violent day, and um, over the weeks that followed, you know, the, the potential for violence did not seem like an issue. But it's important to remember what it's like in that moment of crisis, when something like what happened here in Charlottesville happens. Total crisis. Um, we waited. We decided to delay the opening of the exhibition. Everything sort of stopped at UVA that week. I mean, if you were here, if you live here, you, you know that. Everything just sort of ran to a halt, and everybody was sort of in shock. Uh, as we kind of tried to figure out what had just happened um, in our town. Um, and then by then the we realized we didn't want to display this item. The community had been appallingly traumatized and violated. There had been a death, a murder. Um, we didn't want to put this object of hate on display. So we decided to leave the case in the gallery. You can see this is what it looked like empty with a sign on, explaining why it wasn't displayed, and then we added two items to the exhibition, which were images from the community response to what happened on August 11th and 12th, including this really incredible, remarkable vigil that was held the week after. Everybody gave, gathered on a nameless field. There were about 5,000 community members. And uh, I was there. It was a really, uh, one of the most profoundly beautiful um, experiences I've ever had. And we marched the same path that they had marched across grounds um, with candles and then sang, um, You Shall Overcome, and the good old song um, in front of the tender. Uh It was a profoundly moving, unifying event. So we decided we'd put protests in the gallery around this case and make a statement. That's not usually what what I'd like to do as a curator. I want to be objective and separate myself, but this was not a time for objectivity. Um, and so this is what we did with the gallery. Um, it really was an amazing experience to be opening an exhibition on the history of UVA right after these events occurred. Because of course, immediately, August 11 and 12 changed how the whole world understands Charlottesville and UVA. In fact, if you look on, you can go to Wikipedia. They have this amazing tool in Wikipedia where you can find out about the analytics of people using. So you go to the Charlottesville page and you see the analytics, and it's like this—you know, pretty, pretty reasonable number of people. And then there's a spike uh, the week after, and it just goes right back down. The whole world was looking at us and our university was transformed. So what we'd like to do now is talk a little bit about how those events and other events that have occurred from the time that the item list was finalized until the exhibition opened, but how the exhibition has sort of been reshaped in our minds by that, and how maybe if this exhibition was opening next year instead of last year, What's what's a ten items? We said choose ten items that maybe would be included in uh, in in place of not not in place of a big, just in addition to some of the ones that that are already there. So, um, so we have the cross. Um, We were donated tiki torches, and we took them. We had six six different people offer tiki torches to special collections, and they all contacted me. And my first thought was, I don't want no, no. You don't want these. That's disgusting. That's appalling. I don't want those. Those don't need to be kept. And then my intellectual brain came in and said, yeah, you know, we have a cross that represents the particular kind of pain that was experienced here. Uh, at one time, we'll take these in. So we actually have three of these in the collection as, uh, as documents of what happened on, on August 11th. 101st object. Yeah, something brand new. They were found in the trash cans behind Alderman Library. Yeah. So they were actually used. Uh, Brendan, are you?
1: This is uh, this is one of the objects in the collection. It's a it's a cape worn by a nurse uh, who, who had uh, attended uh, school at, at UVA as part of the medical school. And so we were thinking about this object and nurses at UVA when uh, this happened, which is uh, one of the one of the buildings here was renamed this past year. Uh, the previous name was Jordan Hall, and Harvey Jordan was a dean of the medical school, and uh, he also happened to be a, a big proponent of eugenics in the early 1900s, which uh, uh, was a pretty mainstream. Uh, scientific thing to be back then, and there were there were multiple people at NBA who uh, were important in that field. But it's also a science that has become discredited and a little ugly in retrospect. And so the decision was made to rename that hall uh, for a woman named Vivian Pin, who was. Uh, an African-American woman at the medical school in the class of 1967. And so it's really taking an object like this building and just deciding we're going to think about it differently now, we're going to ask you to think about it differently.
0: In fact, it's sort of like the university is an exhibition, right, Emory? Every building has a name that represents a moment in history, and you just pull one name out and put another name in when you decide that there is a different story you want to tell about your history. She went on to to be a quite, quite prominent physician, um, and uh, and really is appointment the individual. This is the uh, you, want, you want to some yes. of, this is the Homer
1: <laughs> statue. And uh, does <laughs> anyone know who created this statue? <laughs> the sculptor was? The sculptor. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Big pop. Moses
2: Ezekiel. Moses Ezekiel. Oh, yeah. uh,
1: Moses Ezekiel was a Virginian who uh, was the first Jewish cadet at VMI. <laughs> and he went to school there during the Civil War and he fought with his fellow cadets at the Battle of New Market, famously the, the, the battle in the Shenandoah Valley that that had you know school-aged boys marching across the field. He then later studied sculpture in Europe, um, and he did that, and then he also did the uh, Jefferson statue on the north side of the rotunda, a statue in which Jefferson is holding up a, a, a tablet or something that has uh, lots of different names for God on it, from different religions and different cultures, because uh, Moses Ezekiel was very tuned in to the religious freedom aspect of Jefferson's thinking, Uh, for obvious reasons. He did not always have an easy go as a Jew in Europe. Anyhow. Uh, One of the reasons why this uh, photo stood out for us is that in the weeks following what happened last summer, there was just this interesting back and forth about the meaning of Jefferson as kind of embodied in this statue at UVA. Uh, You might remember that original Friday night August 11th, as the the dudes with the the torches are coming off the lawn, there's a group of students here sort of encircling this statue as a signal or a sign of resistance to the the guys with the torches.
0: Which is just so great, right? Because I think the guys with the torches wanted to claim that they wanted to sort of I mean to protect Jefferson is almost a kind of ironic thing for those students to do, right? Because the 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 goal is to keep up the the goal is to keep up the statue downtown that represents Robert E. Lee. So the goal is to for the, for the white supremacists who come is to keep the statues up that represent white supremacy, which is supposedly an inheritance of Thomas Jefferson. And here we have students who are opposed to that white supremacy who are protecting the sculpture of Thomas Jefferson. It's a wonderfully complicated, layered moment. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it becomes more so
1: because then a week or two later, uh, a group of, of students, uh, you know, covered up the statue with a black tarp and used it as a different symbol. Again, in that moment, it's a symbol of white supremacy. And for this, I mean, what it meant to me, like it, to me, it's, it's less, I'm not so much interested in staking out my territory about who Jefferson was and what he means. Um, we can all sort of do that for ourselves. But what's interesting to me is that The university in ways that are maybe more obvious and performative than in the past is really struggling within itself about what Jefferson means and what it means that that this university is is founded by him, but it is built around him. You can't really separate one from the other. He's baked in the cake. And I think that you know the question is, what does that mean? And how do we deal with that? Because it's there's a, a lot of amazing upsides to a figure like Juggers, and, and those have been rehearsed for 200 years. Um, but there's a lot of things that are more, more complicated and, and challenging about it, too. And that's something that people are struggling with. Oh, The question is, are there surveys? Probably from the student body. Yeah, from the student body. I mean, I don't don't know. I've been sort of paying attention when I see this stuff pop up in the cafe. Um, And I remember reading a story from last fall about a student council meeting kind of erupting in, in arguments over whether... Jefferson was a white supremacist. And it's just, that, that's just, it's, I think it's actually a positive thing. it's probably not the, the most fun meeting to be at. But these are, I think, um, important discussions
0: to kind of chew on, even, even if, you know, it's not yeah. fun. And it's very painful, I think, I mean, for the students. I, I think that um, it's a very uncomfortable time politically for everyone, it's incredibly divisive, even within the university campus. I mean, there were professors last year who said, nobody should ever quote Jefferson ever again, you know? And it's that kind of, you know, because he's so awful. And that, that is just the moment we are living in. This is UVA's version of what's <laughs> happening everywhere, whether it's on the right or the left. And I think one of the reasons that we thought this object, this sculpture is so great, as, a, as an added object, is because it has become. I mean, these objects become at the center of these conversations and these massive disagreements that, that are so powerful right now. But we've liked it at uh, the time. All right. yeah, we got, we got now. Oh yeah, this is pretty cool. This is the uh, this is the first. Oh, women's NCAA championship at UVA, which was in track in 1973?
1: 73 is what this I was right I after the women started here. This is pretty freaking awesome. I didn't go to UVA, so like when I make fun of Virginia Tech, mostly I'm just imitating with other people <laughs> to get approval. And I think about how women have been, you know, doing sports at UVA for like a year or two years and boom, national championship. And Virginia Tech is still waiting for their yeah. national
2: championship. approval, I love it.
0: So we thought uh, a really cool addition would be that since this exhibition was finalized, UVA hired its first woman athletic director. This is Carla Williams. We don't know what her object would be, maybe just a picture of her. We don't, we don't really have any objects for her yet, but you know. What did you ask? Uh, well, we well, just, we just put this We don't know yet. Have you met her? I've met her. No, but if
1: we were to get an object for her, we would ask her. We wouldn't. Yeah. bring her closet. Yeah. She might not have anything yet.
0: No, I mean, I would take that jacket. It's pretty snazzy. She's rocking rocking UVA colors. You know, she's got the whole thing going on. So, this is Carla Williams. So, she's she's a pretty cool thing that's happened um, since since we finalized the exhibition. Oh, you have to explain this item. Well, this is a, a. This came from.
1: This is one of the original 50 objects that I inherited from the magazine, and this is the student ID card of a law student, then a law student named Bowie Q. Does anybody know who he is? We've got
0: our expert over here in the blue shirt.
1: Yeah, any baseball fans, he went on to become commissioner of Major League Baseball, and one of the most influential commissioners the game's ever known. So under his watch, it was the first night games, it was uh, the first, uh, the, the, the league's relationship with uh, the unions changed immensely. Just a lot of things that are almost taken for granted in the modern game made it. As, as big and financially uh, important as it is today happened on his watch. and So he's just one of a, a million sort of quasi-celebrities who have come through the law school. So here's another
0: one. There's not so much quasi. <laughs> not quasi. So uh, Antonin, Antonin Scalia passed away um, after the objects for the sex had been finalized uh, back in 2016. And uh, this is, uh, in terrible condition, you can see the tape there. This is a photograph I took from um, the draft minutes of the Board of Visitors. Um, This is his appointment. Um, This is the the minutes from the meeting in which his appointment as Associate Professor of Law was made in 1967. So that's a pretty cool object, um, looking back from um, the moment that his um, his, uh, term, unfortunately, uh, ended with his death. is on the Supreme Court, so that, we thought that would be a pretty great um, item to kind of come off of uh, the Kuhn item to add. What else do we have? Oh, this is a good one. This is my favorite. Oh, yeah. Actually, this is one of my favorite items in the exhibition, because this really? Is it's really you bad. Know, it's, it's so bad. so good. And he's really quite good looking. We have a photograph of him. We should have put, put it in the next to this, because the poor guy, like, he can't defend himself.
1: No, so this was uh, this is an object that's in the that exhibition, and it is a student doodle or sketch of his professor. whom he identifies here as our German professor. The man's name was Maximilian Shelley and he was, I think, Swedish by birth, Austrian by education, and. Uh, Irish by mysterious marriage, um, the De Vere was supposedly came from a woman named Maud De Vere, whom he may or may not have married at some point in Europe, uh, before he was recruited to come and teach languages at UVA, and in his later years at UVA, he had this really amazing kind of Teutonic beard and mustache. but. He, he you know, had a bare face in his, in his earliest years, and he, he taught at UVA for like 50 years. Uh, he, somewhat famously, if, if you've done research about the university, put together a book in the 1870s, I think, that is a list of every student and professor ever to have been at the university what they, when they attended, when they graduated, if they graduated, what they studied, and what they went on to do. Uh, I know, he was a little obsessive, which I
0: could, I could relate to. And that's, we, love, we love that that's a lot harder to
1: do in the 1870s than it right. might be to do today. And then he kind of went a little, like... Uh, Goofy in his old age. Well, all that, all that whispering. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of names. And he like, had some illness and he was taking pills for the illness. He was taking, I don't know if he took pills or anything, but he was taking some kind of medication and it, it may have been behind a couple of really intemperate letters that he wrote to fellow faculty members <laughs> that actually uh-huh. got him fired. Did
2: we have the letters?
0: Probably. I, I don't know. I'm supposed to know that,
1: actually. <laughs> even after 50 years at the university. So um, this is sort of an interesting, interesting view.
0: That but but the, reason, the reason that this is up here is because it's, it's a character of him by a student, uh, and that prompted me to say, well, here's an item I would want to add, which would be, this is a, this is a, a self-portrait of the uh, political cartoonist Pat Oliphant, Whose papers UVA just acquired, Um, so we now have the archive with over 6,000 political cartoons by Pat Olfen over in Special Collections, and that for me has been probably the single most important thing that happened in the last couple of years because I had to I had to maneuver that project for two years. So my personal choice would be um, for us to put an object in representing the acquisition of that archive, which is a great addition to our uh, historical political collections for the 20th century. Much better than that student. That's what he's doing. Oh, this is a great one.
1: This is an object also in the exhibition that is a piece of tin that came from the rotunda and was burned in the fire in 1895. It's a roof tile, right? Yeah, and, and multiple artists did this, I believe. Uh, maybe two, but I, I think more than one. Anyway. Uh, came and picked up these tins and then painted on them and sold them as souvenirs. And so this is a painting of the burned out rotunda on a piece of the burned out rotunda, which is pretty amazing. There's
0: been a lot of great stuff related to the rotunda in the exhibition and we thought that, of course, if we were to do this now, we'd want to include a video of the bicentennial celebration last fall, which I missed, unfortunately, but I saw them doing sound checks and press. It was unbelievable. They got a company that does these projections so you can see this picture on the left at the bottom. It looks like the rotunda is on fire. They actually did, they recreated in slides that were projected onto the rotunda the entire history of UVA. It was absolutely gorgeous. And then they had this. I don't know how. Who captured that photograph up there? Um, but it, you know, fireworks. It was a really, really, magnificent I can kickoff to the bicentennial season. And the bicentennial itself would, of course, you know, be an object. What do we got next? Uh, this is pretty good. Well, <laughs> this is Molly,
1: Molly and I are the, the worst people to talk about this object. This is <laughs> this is again an object from the original 50. And so I just took those, because I didn't have time to come up with my own 50. And so this is something from the original Rouse Hall. It's a floor joists. Okay,
0: thank you. <laughs> we we didn't—we don't think it's very interesting. And then this really—we we did the program last year with this, with this really cool guy from the School of Architecture, who was just—he was, he was just design thinking, I and mean, he just went on this thing about, wood and foundations of buildings and the underside of the university. And we were both just kind of blown away. He he, he had all sorts of great things to say about this, but both Brandon and I find ourselves being like, what do you do with a piece of wood from a floor? I was looking at this and I was like,
1: well, I'm not going to say anything about this because I don't literally even understand what it is. But I was interested in, in what Rouse Hall was. Rouse Hall was one of the buildings that closed off the the south end of the lawn after the fire. And uh, this ran really contrary to Jefferson's original vision of the lawn. And so that's an interesting moment in and of itself, the building of those three structures. But then it was, who's it named for? When we talk about you know the ways in which that's significant, it was named for this guy. Uh, Rouse, I forget what his first name was, but you can't forget what his nickname was. He was Broadway Rouse. And he was from the Shenandoah Valley. He fought in the Civil War. He became some big kind of businessman after the war and gave a ton of money both to UVA and to lots of other uh, institutions. And in fact, the the building that now houses the Virginia Historical Society, in Richmond, and what is now the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, they've rebranded. That was originally funded largely by Broadway House as a, what they called at the time, the Battle Abbey of the Confederacy. It was a single monument to the Confederacy that that, uh, was meant to represent. Uh, the sacrifice of, of soldiers and civilians throughout that time. So anyway, he was an interesting view,
0: and and we we were inspired by this as a as an artifact of of architecture to recommend to ourselves two for the items. One of which would be the soon to be lost Cavalier Inn, which will be raised. Uh, um, in order to make room for, we're not exactly sure what yet, but something wonderful, new, I hear all sorts of cool rumors about what they're going to do with that space, but they want to make a more beautiful you know, entrance to the university when you're coming down uh, from Route 29 down 10th Street. And so they're going to raise this building, we you've been here for so long, I love the little postcard right there. But we already know what we can say. I would like the idea of one of those railings, but they can be way too big to put in special functions. Kind of a warm flare. And then we, then that inspired this item, and it also inspired that we thought, of course, this is one of the concept drawings for the new, uh, the new memorial to enslaved laborers um, that's going to go in. So those are two huge architectural decisions that have been made um, by the university since this, this exhibition was uh, finalized. So I, I believe they're going to start construction on, on this, probably around the same time when they start tearing down the they're in. This is going to be, if you look behind it, you can see um, you can see the rotunda and you can see uh, Brooks Hall. And the corner is, where uh, 109 is, is over where the corner is. It's a yeah, very, very prominent, um, large um, uh, kind of circular memorial that has enough room in it for a class to sit uh, in circle and grass and have a class session. Um, and uh, there's a lot of information about this online. Um, it was a really cool project. They uh, had students submit ideas. Lots of big student groups. You know, our architecture program here is just incredible. And so, when it comes to planning a landscape architecture project like this memorial, um, they they really um, they really did this the right way and came up with um, what I I think is really beautiful. Brendan's a little anxious about the landscape changing you know. Was the plagiarism ever raised from From the Vietnam War Memorial? Uh, No, I don't think plagiarism was raised. I think it is is actually uh, quite actively conceived as as an homage to that, and I think that they specifically address that as an inspiration for this. So I think plagiarism is pretty negative. I think that the idea was that it inspired it, and, and they would be very honest about that. Yeah, the style of that particular monument. This um this is different in, in a lot of ways, but it is certainly inspired by it. But that's the first thing that comes to mind. Oh absolutely. It's the first thing I call it too. Yeah, well, yes. How will the names be? So it's that. not it's not gonna be names entirely, um, because a lot of the enslaved laborers at the university domains are not known. Um, so I think they're still working on um, what the full nature of the inscriptions around um, around that are going to be, but that, that's a good question. There are a lot of people working on this, um, and uh, they've been doing a lot of identifying of names from the university records, that are in special collections. But they're I think they're still they're still working on that. And I mean, based on my experience working in the library, the materials will come after this is done, um, will come to the surface. I mean, the history is always being discovered. So my guess is that they're going to treat this as a work in progress, which I believe is also the case with the, um, with the Vietnam Memorial. Um, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty cool project. Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing it happen. But I, I kind of like novelty. But it sounds like, sounds well, like. Well, I, I, I told Molly I was just anxious, because
1: it's it's just it's stated, it be it's so different. Yeah, I mean,
2: yeah,
0: it's, I big. It's, just like... it's big, and I love that big, empty grass stretch. But you know, I don't know. I'm like... <laughs> so this is this is a, this is our last one, last item. This is, this is this is in the exhibition, and um, this isn't the greatest photograph. because This doesn't show you the postage stamp, but this was a shoe that was sent in mail to Teresa Sullivan in support of her when she was ousted back in 2012. And this came in one of the boxes of stuff we get periodically from the president's office. So she kindly saved some of the. Remember, she and her staff saved some of the memorabilia that came along the way, and uh, and so uh, this this up um, in special collections. It's kind of a staff favorite and friendly kind of. Two people in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, I know, it's they were like, we if we could, we would click our ruby red slippers to come and support you in person. So this, I I found tricky. <laughs> like, so they they couldn't find a box anymore, and I no, they wanted to send you can send us. Mail. Yeah, it's, it's so legal interesting. It's awesome. really interesting. But that I was just like, of course. Who wants to guess why I would choose this? or we'll recommend this, as the 110th object. Yes, our new president, Jim Ryan, is a These are not actually his running shoes. I'm not quite brave enough to email him and say, can you send me a picture of your running shoes? But if I were to object representing our new president, I would want a pair of running shoes, because that's what he does, and he did this great event. Actually, I love running shoes he wore for the event he did during the book festival this spring, which was sort of his informal Welcome to the University event, where he was interviewed on stage at Paramount by the guy who owns the right. Dragon Mountain Running Shop. They're, they're running, buddies. And have been for a long time, and, uh, and he wore running shoes to part of that talk, and uh, it was pretty great. And uh, this is a big part, I think, of his personality. He's, he's super into sports, and, and uh, he's a, he seems like a pretty, a pretty neat guy. And uh, we have to have an object representing him. And right now, I don't know, this is all I know, running shoes. So we've got time for
1: questions that you might have, or if you want to throw out to us objects that we should be thinking about collecting <laughs> for the 300th anniversary. doesn't it?
2: I have just a quick observation of the, the British Museum did the 100, the 100, the 100 Objects thing. They, they have a podcast for every object, so if anyone's actually interested, that's still up on, you can get that very easily on yes. iTunes or anywhere, and you can listen to, they have like, it's on their website, they have photographs of the jobs that you can listen to an hour of discussion of why each object, object. object, yeah, it's oh,
0: pretty cool, I've listened to some of those, yeah. Yeah, so just. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Questions? I'm sure then that I can put an opening exhibition and you can go to the profession by the painting And
1: that's one of the big things that has changed that you gave you now become like a entertainment center. You know, you can make a concert at the stadium, JBJ, maybe a group or something like that. Right. Oh, yeah, so, so something that, that reflects. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, something that
0: reflects the, 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 the big time entertainment like the, the a series. like a ticket stub from a Bob Dylan, you know, concert from two thousand fourteen or whenever he came with me here recently. You know, from JPJ or something like that. Or, Yeah, I used to say Dave Matthews. Or Dave Matthew, Dave Matthews I didn't have
2: Yeah. They had big name bands here throughout the forties and 50s.
0: Yeah, you know, we don't really we don't, we don't have, good representation of that in
1: the studio. Brandon, you got to go back and do the whole thing. We'll talk about think Well, I was looking at uh, I was looking at old, uh, and you know other periodicals that came out of the university and someone who, who wrote a book about a jazz musician being able to see the advertisements for the people who did come through in the 20s, I mean,
0: if I can go
1: back in time.
0: You know, speaking, yeah. speaking of your book, Brendan, just so you guys know, Brendan you know, wrote this amazing book on Big fire. But also, his book, Mr. Jefferson's Telescope, is available at the UPA bookstore for your purchase for only $25, right? Oh God, yeah. Um, yeah. Something idea. like that. And it's not an expensive book. He, he's not very good at promoting himself, and you can say that at the end
2: Yes. Thank you. When you were talking about books earlier, I thought, and books and visions, I thought it this quite, where
1: do you think the Virginia Dabney history that did in the 70s fits into your
2: scheme as it came out
1: during the change? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Virginia, so in the way that uh, Philip Alexander Bruce is sort of a character in a way in the first half of the book, Virginia Dabney is a kind of character in the second half of the book, because who do you consult among uh, published historians about the first women to come to UVA. You consult Virginia Stagney, who's this very sort of skinny, proper, 60s conservative Virginia dude who who was himself a UVA graduate. He was born at UVA. His great grandfather was the professor who was murdered on grounds in 18. 18- Forty, um, and uh, I mean he's
0: he's connected
1: to everybody, right? And but he's
0: also like I don't know. I have so much ambivalence about him. He's so grounded. He's so change. awful. He there's a woman I'm forgetting her name who was a really big deal on on grounds. Um, she was the dean of she was like the assistant to the dean of students and she basically ran everything. And and she's like you know very serious uh, academic. Um, administrator, and he's describing her in his book, I was doing another project on, on kind of women at the university, and he's describing her and he says, blah, 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 she did this, she did that, the students all went to her for everything, and everybody depended on her great knowledge, and she really didn't have any sex appeal. <laughs> in the middle of this like, description of this totally professional woman's career, he Feels the need to say that she just didn't have any sex appeal, and it's it's so it can be um, a little jarring to read a book from your own lifetime that's just so retrograde. Well, like I don't mind that with Bruce so much. It's like oh, it was a hundred years ago. You gotta you know you gotta let it go. But when it's from the '70s, I do find myself being a little a little bit more. Well, I, I think be a bit of a bad news. I think Virginia's daddy was very
1: ambivalent about women coming to the university. Oh, yeah. And especially in 1970, the thing that—I I mean, he, he was very sort of grouchy about change, and I am, too, and I so I can sort of—I can identify in a certain way, and sort of, you know, you read, you read him, and his personality really comes through in a way, and, and I, I found that even though I teased him a little bit in the book, um, I, I identified with him. One of the things that he kept harping on uh, after women came was that he just didn't think they dressed well. And it was just like he was obsessed. Wait,
0: this respect. is the early seventies nobody dressed well? Uh, all these
1: dirty hippie girls, you know. <laughs> he didn't put it like that, but that's kind of what he meant. And it was I just I, I, I found it to be really funny in a kind of exasperating yeah. way, but at the same time, we are really, uh, I, I personally am really grateful yeah. that, he, that, that he wrote the book he wrote. I mean, there, there's, uh, the history in it isn't,
0: isn't bad. Well, I mean, it's not about Darden is amazing. Like, that's, I mean, to get that, to, get, to capture just how revolutionary Darden was as an administrator, You have to read Dany to to, to get that. He does such a good job of of capturing that moment and the influence that Daryl had, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Yes,
1: sir. Bicentennial, 200 objects, does the university ask you on that? Well, for the bicentennial, they wanted 100 objects. Thank goodness they did want
0: 200 objects in the middle of it. Well, so so I, actually, by, by Jamie I actually said to my, oh, my exhibition nice. coordinator, I said, you know what we could do? I said, in 2025, at the other end of this, we could do the second 100 objects. But she gave me the Stink Eye, and she had just like, prepared all this stuff. But I can, I can see it. I can see it coming. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> a a Thank you very bigger question for,
2: for for me: When we do these uh, retrospective lookbacks and say that was a bad time, let's eradicate that from our memory. When we change the name of a professor because you know, when the, the building, building yeah. because he was into eugenics, when right. that was good science at that time. Right? Is that? And when you tear down a statue of Barbie Lee or Jefferson because they had slaves? Do you think that might be dangerous? I've be written of a little story that they tear down all the monuments, Monument Avenue in Richmond, mm-hmm. and then right. a thousand years from now, guys are digging up things, and they find monuments. I think, that, I think that's, that's all is, about
0: yeah.
2: And you can forget the the things by changeable effort might so we're gonna eradicate that in our
0: history. Well, I think that the question is, um, is everything that we remember memorialized by a statue? And the answer is no. Very, very small number of things that happen in history have statues. So the question is, what do we decide as a statue, and where do we decide that statue gets to be? make that decision, what are we saying, and I think that, I mean, to me, that's where the core of the debate over the Robert E. Lee statue is, is, no one's going to forget who Robert E. Lee is. That statue is not the only thing that keeps Robert E. Lee in memory. memory. Even, my God, there's a lot of Robert E. Lee everywhere, right, in our archives and special collections, um, in the history books, there are going to be portraits, there are going to be um, on private property, there are going to be tons and tons of, of, of statues and things like this, My question is, is it, are we at more risk of forgetting a 1,000 years from now Robert E. Lee because that statue's torn down, or what happens when an African-American mother from Charlottesville takes her seven-year-old daughter to the library next door for some books, and they're leaving the library and they walk past that, and the mother has to try and explain to her child why the city pays to maintain a sculpture with their taxes on the side of a war that wanted to keep their ancestors enslaved. And to me, the experience of that mother and that father, who I imagine, is more important right now than the question of whether or not that means some kind of crisis in, in cultural memory is going to happen down the road, I feel like the damage that that does to the community fabric of people who are it, on that public property, to me, that's my personal opinion, that's more important because it's a, it is, a, it is a, an ongoing problem um, of having public property um, stand to represent the Confederacy. Um, in a town with descendants of slaves walking through that park. Um, That that touches me personally. So I don't think we're at risk of forgetting this stuff.
1: Well, I just want to say as a historian, there's a couple of things that we can easily conflate that I think are, are separate. One is history and how we do history, which is a kind of enterprise where you take sources that are out there and you construct what you know to be accurate narratives out of those sources, and histories can have all sorts of meanings and narratives and arguments, but they're always out of sources and are meant to be factual and accurate. It's really different from the idea of memory. memory. History belongs to historians. It's what historians do. It's what they're trained to do. Memory belongs to communities. And memory is what the community decides it wants to take from history, or ignore, and decide what it means to that community. So it seems to me that you've got historians writing books about Robert E. Lee and about slavery, and making arguments about what it means. And then you have communities deciding what's important to us right now, and so as a community we can argue about property e. lease statutes and we can argue about what they ought to mean and how the community ought to remember them. And we can use history as a tool in those arguments. But however that argument comes out in terms of memory, it doesn't change history. History is still being done as it was done before and as it will continue to do and so memory changes over time but it doesn't eradicate anything out of history it just may change the way communities think about themselves
0: and this is just one of the many ways that we change our landscape you know i'm I'm painting my house right now it's a 1928 charlottesville arts and crafts home and the historically accurate colors would be uh kelly green on the front door and shingles and and white on the windows. And I'm going full on California Arts and Crafts. And I'm erasing that. Um, And we're doing it all the time. Cavalier Inn is yet another example. So there are all these objects of memory of which statues I think, are only a small number. I think we're we're out of time, so we better, if you want to come ask more questions afterwards, please come up. And we have um, brochures and keychains and posters from the exhibition. Uh, Please take that. Thank you so much.